Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Welcome to Group Text. I know I always say I'm excited, but today I'm really excited. For those of you that don't know, I am a true crime junkie, specifically serial killers, if we really want to get down to like the nitty gritty. But I am a true crime junkie. Joining me, of course, is Sabrina, who has to live with my true crime obsession, which, by the way, my mother also had. Oh, yes, she did. And rule. Oh, my goodness. There are many. The list goes on. And my writing partner and friend, Larry Amrose, who is as much of a true crime expert, junkie, um, sophisticate as, as, as I am. He actually gave me the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers for my birthday last year. It's an actual book. Um, so we're super excited to have our guest, Billy Jensen, author, podcaster, and investigator. Billy, you are walking into a room where people have a million questions for you. So I'm going to start right off okay. the bat. What got you started? What made you fall in love with true crime? You know, I. you don't have to be a... When I was writing the book, I, I realized this, and you don't have to writing be your book. Give it to share. Oh, chase darkness with me, <clears throat> and you were. You don't have to be Freud to figure out why this happened. And every day, I would wait for my father to come home uh, from painting houses. He would come home. He would crack a beer, and he would read the newspaper on Long Island, which was Newsday, and then he would watch TV. And I would sit in the middle of him and the television trying to get his attention. And he would, whenever he would talk to me, he would talk to me about whatever crimes were going on. So that was always in the back of my head. Um, Then I started, I saw a a show when I was 10 years old or something called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, which is about Nostradamus. And uh, in, in it, they had a part about the JFK assassination. And the grassy knoll and everything. And it freaked me out. And the next day, I went to my school's library and I said, can I have all the books that you have on, on JFK? And um, they, they gave me the books. And then I did that every day for like a month. Just like, and that's how I got into like studying forensics and all this other stuff. And then, uh, you know, I took a lot of weird paths to get here. I was a religious studies major. I, I got a master's degree in religious studies. But I was always veering off towards the more crime elements uh, and cults of religious studies. And then, you know, when I started writing at newspapers, I um, I started uh, being a stringer at the New York Times, and I got a phone call saying, uh, you know, what a stringer is, is that you're just a, you're the, you do the legwork. And I got a phone call one Saturday morning saying, um, you know, there was a body found in a barrel in a house in Jericho. Can you go check it out? And everything started from there. I remember this story. So you you found the woman's body in the barrel, right? And then you so you went and started looking back on 
the history the, of the of the who owned the house. Correct, the property records. So I called up the most recent because uh, they had just sold the house. That's how they found the barrel because the guy was cleaning at the house like you do sometimes when you buy a house, and he finds this barrel in there and. Uh, I called up uh, one of the previous owners. There was nobody there. I called up another previous owner, and the cops were there. Then I called up the original owner, and I said, uh, he actually answered the phone. He was in Florida. I said, this is Mr. Howard Elkins. He said, yes. I said, uh, you know, your house was just sold, and they found a, uh, a barrel in the crawl space, and there was a body in it. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. It's like, you have any idea how that got there? He's like, No. And we kept talking, and, um, you know, I remember asking him, like, did you ever go in the crawl space? And he's like, why would I, you know? And then a week later, he went into a garage and blew his brains out with a shotgun. So, you know, the, the call it, some, you know, I don't want to say it's beginner's luck, but it's just in my very first case, I spoke to the man who, who did this murder 30 years ago, and told him his jig was up, and nothing has been that easy since. And just to fill in the blanks for people, because I actually remember this story, it was, who who was it who he had killed? It, it was his secretary. That's right. Uh, yes, and he worked at a uh, flower, they made fake flowers, like decorative fake flowers. And he killed her because... Because he got her pregnant. That's right. Yeah. Why do I remember there being something with passports? But that could have been another case. What, what do you think has been your so that what what has been your most compelling case, other than uh, the Golden State Killer, which we'll get to? Right, you know I think probably to go back to barrels, it was the four bodies found in barrels in uh, in Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, and uh, it was a woman and three children all unidentified, didn't know who killed them. And then just seeing sort of a whole family unit, you know, going missing and then also not being identified was just really striking to me. So I started working that story. The way it unraveled... Well, tell, explain to us how you start working a story. Like, for those of us that are amateurs at this, yet would like to become professionals, not looking for a career change, but just always thinking of a plan B. Right. So you, you find this, how did this story come to you? You know what? This was one of those where typically stories come to me because a victim's family contacts me uh, or, or a friend or something and says, can you please look into this story? Because we didn't know who these people were. That didn't happen. So this was just a case that I saw a small news story on and I thought we we need to be able to identify this woman and these three uh, children. I could give it a bigger platform. I was on a show at the time called Crime Watch Daily, so I flew out there to New Hampshire. Uh, flew out to the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, who had actually done uh, facial reconstructions of all four victims. And just wanted to give it a bigger platform and a national audience to see if we could identify who those victims were. The, the case took so many strange and weird turns because a few years later, we discovered the man who killed them uh, through deduction and through genetic genealogy. But we still didn't know who they were. And that was the... 
you know, the man who killed him turned out to be a serial killer. And he probably, when people ask me who the worst serial killer is, I say it's Terry Rasmussen. And this is why. What, what his pattern was, was that he would sidle up to a woman with children, a, a single mother. He would separate that woman from their family. Meaning? That, meaning he would take them to another state. Remember, this is the 70s. People don't have cell phones or social or anything so like that. So he would that. kidnap yeah. them. Not kidnap them, no. Just separate them. Just use coercive control. Just say... You know, um, you mean, know did we're going to move da- here. Did he start dating them? Was it that kind of yeah, a thing? Yeah, sure, that he sure. Got, you started dating he, them, yeah. So it wasn't just like he sat, walked up to them and said, hi, please get in my van. We're going to another no. state. No. Uh, but he specifically shows single moms with, uh, with children. He would begin molesting the children. Then once the children got old enough to talk, he would... Kill the mother and then use those children as a lure to get the next family, to get the next woman and children. Yeah, yeah. Basically, what he was using them as bait just to show them, oh, I'm this poor guy. I'm a single dad. Yeah. Then he would kill the original children and then start the pattern all over again. My God. How many years did that take place? It sounds like a long process. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it was over the course of what we think was maybe a six months to a year. Uh, we don't know how many times he did it, but there is definitely a pattern of him doing that um, very, very much thing. And, and uh, you know, the 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 children that were found, two of them weren't his one. One was his. We still now we've identified now the woman and two of the children in the barrels. Uh, we haven't identified uh, the last child. The one is who's actually ident- was was related to him was his. How child. how long did the, his pattern go on for? We don't really know. We know it was it was, uh, you know, at least you know eighty to, you know, going back to, um, you know, eighty, you know, probably late seventies. And it could have gone all the way up to when he was finally convicted of murdering Ansun June in Northern California. And that was in the early 2000s. Whoa. Yeah. How come no one picked up on this? Because he was... Back then, if you had a family member... Remember, this is before you know, we have, we were so connected with communication. If you had a family member who said, hey, I'm, I'm moving away or something like that... And then you don't hear from them for like a month. That's normal. You know, uh, it just wasn't a thing. You know, people were especially people that didn't have a lot of means. Long distance phone calls were really expensive and people don't remember that. So it was common for people not to want to spend $30 on a phone call. Uh, they were just one day. OK, we'll get a letter from her at Christmas or something, you know. So it's not like today when as soon as somebody goes missing today and we still do a, a, a crap job at, at for missing persons. But as soon as somebody goes missing today, you have people saying, oh, let's go find them right now. And there's something off back then. You just didn't have that. Was he wealthy or good looking? I'm trying to think, you know, what is he offering these women to get them to relocate with him? Well, like Ted Bunding was handsome and that was always his thing and he'd have like a fake cast or crutches and can you help me Mm -hmm. you know uh, Gacy you know was a clown I mean what what was it about him that these people would follow him 
you know what? He was very manipulative. You know, he was a master at course of control. He was a master. You know, he had very uh, he had piercing blue eyes. I guess you could say. You know, some women, women would find him attractive uh, in his later mug shots. He, he he looked like a mess, but I think um, it was just you know he was you're a woman in the late 70s with two children and you don't have a job you know when somebody comes by and says i'm going to take care of you you know that's what he was doing yeah so that was your most compelling case what was your most frightening case i mean have you ever felt like you've been in danger during any of these yeah uh just from threats it's usually just online threats and things you know uh you know, when you're walking around, when you're if you're canvassing a uh, a neighborhood, when I did the one of my very first investigations, which was in Bedford Stuyvesant, it was the only other murder in New York City on 9/11 in 2001, and this Polish immigrant was murdered in Bedford Stuyvesant. I went around knocking door to door and everything like that, and I didn't particularly feel like I was in danger, but the police. When I told them I did that, because I gave the police information that they hadn't even gotten, because I talked to people that they hadn't talked to, and they said, you really shouldn't have done that. You were definitely in danger. You probably, t- you definitely, they said you definitely talked to somebody who either is, is, pre- is, is close to who the killer was, just based on the way that neighborhood works. So I said, well, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. And, um, you know, not, you know that, but when I was when I was actually doing it, I didn't feel any kind of danger or anything like that. When do you, when you're doing this, are you working in conjunction with police? Are you exchanging information? Are they opposed to your participating? It depends. Uh, it depends on you know one of the things that I was able to figure out um, when I started using social media to solve murders. Uh, if I you know a victim's family reaches out to me. I reach out to the police. I say, hey, I want to try this system out. And then if they say, no, we've got a suspect, don't do it. We don't want you to spook him. We're just building a case on him. I'll, st- I'll step back. Um, if they don't answer the phone, which happens a lot, or don't call me back, then I will give them you know, a week, and then I'll go for it. Uh, but there are some that will actually say, they'll understand, wow, this, this actually makes sense, and they'll do it. Uh, and they and they'll and they'll actually be a partnership uh, with me, which is which is good, you know. Um, for my first case that I ever solved using social, I saw a man get attacked on a street in Chicago, and this kind of big bully of a guy, and this is all through surveillance footage and traffic footage, attacks this guy. The guy runs away. For some reason, he looks back, and the guy, you know, the attacker, just clocks him. He is out before he hits the ground. That he falls into a crosswalk. The man then yells at everybody who has surrounded this guy, trying to help him, saying, you know, you're next. I'm going to beat you up, too. Get the hell out of here. A minute and a half later, a cab makes a turn and, and into the crosswalk and runs over his body and kills so him. So no one had pulled the body at least out of the crosswalk? No. God, you got to love you gotta love people's yeah. lack of, of, of impetus well, to at least I move mean, the body out of I traffic. Mean, I mean, think, I think they were also... They were also scared of this guy, you know, uh, who was who was threatening them and saying, like, get the hell out of here. But, you know, somebody should have at least stood there. Yes. Or or pulled the body onto the onto the sidewalk. Well, I mean, I think you're dealing with a head injury, too. So, um, 
and there are good Samaritan laws, so you wouldn't be liable for that for moving somebody with a head injury. But I think at least that. And um, I saw this video, and I said, why haven't we figured out who this guy is? It was pretty clear video. And it was two months later, and the family had a press conference, and they were begging for help. And I said, I know why. And it's because people don't watch TV anymore. This was actually national news, and people didn't. nobody saw it. I said, I bet I could use social media to find this guy. And through Twitter... I set up a Facebook page. I did Twitter. I bought tar- geo-targeted advertising just within that mile radius of where that crime happened. And I set up a page called River North Puncher because that was the neighborhood. And I was looking for the guy. I had it. Uh, I put out some tweets. Tweet came back to me and said, um, I hope this helps. And it was a photo, a front-facing picture of the man. Uh, the, the attacker. And I was amazed. And f- at first I thought, like, did you mock this up somehow from the footage? Uh, just giving me such a clear picture. And then I was trying to beg with the guy, please, do, you know, what do you know? Were you there? Like, how, is this a photo? What is this? And then he said, maybe this will help. And he's, and it's a video. And I open the video. And the first thing I see is the victim on the ground, whose name is Marcus Gaines, who was a bartender. Victim is on the ground, and then the camera pans up, and then right in front of me, walking right into my face, is the puncher. And I got his voice then, I got his height, I got everything, and I was able to take that and match it up to the... um, Cook County puts all of their their, uh, mug shots online, and I was able to just go through... He had a very distinctive widow's peak. I was able to go through all the mug shots and then find... um, a couple people that look like him and then dig into that and was able to finally identify him. Do you find that people want to just generally remain anonymous or they are like willing to help? Like this person, did they have an alias? Like, you know, sometimes people just don't want to get involved because they're afraid that, you know, yeah. people will come after them. You mean the guy that sent the video? Yes, the guy that sent the video. He uh, he said that he I don't think he was using an alias. Sometimes that does happen. Uh, I'll see people set up when I'm doing a Facebook uh, uh, campaign. Somebody will set up a brand new Facebook uh, uh, profile just to send me a, a tip. That's happened before. Uh, uh, but with this guy, no, I think this guy was just he said his friend took it. Not he. You know, he didn't take it um, for, for, you know, for what that's worth. A question. Um, it's, you know, when I, when I first started, I, I, I got first turned on to this genre when I was like 13, I read in cold blood by Truman Capote and it just kept my brain going. Mm-hmm. And it seems over the last five or seven years, true crime has become one of the more popular, I mean, there's, there's complete channels on it, networks and unsolved mysteries is the number one show on Netflix. And it, yeah. what, what do you think the boom has been where what had been like a very, you know, you tell people, oh, I love true crime, and they whisper and titter, and now it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it used to be basically like Anne Rule and three other people, and we would all sit and wait for the next yeah. Anne Rule book yeah. to come out. Yes. And now everyone's involved, and it's great. You know, what happened was, it was a confluence of things. Serial is, was the biggest, the big break, breakthrough. Uh, yeah, we were all kind of- The do- podcast. The podcast, and we were-, we were we were all doing uh, our own things. I was writing true crime stories in places, and they would get, you know, none of them would ever really go viral. I wrote this, the, the, 
uh, the article in Rolling Stone that Don't Fuck With Cats eventually became. Uh, and that was, you know, that it, it's not like that went viral or anything when I wrote the article. Um, but then, you know, you put it on TV. And it said, so th- what happened was is that Serial captured everyone's imagination with this new platform of podcasting. And uh, fr- after that, Making a Murderer was, you know, was on the back of that. And then it just kind of spiraled and it became this thing that's very female focused. I can tell you that probably 90% of our listeners are female. Why do you think that is? I think we're dealing with human, uh, being in touch with human, human emotions and females get that a lot more than males. Uh, males are just kind of idiots. So <laughs> hey, you said it, you said yeah, it. We didn't say it. You we said didn't it. say it. You I, said it. You know what? I'll say that to my grave. Yeah. Most <laughs> men are. And, uh, you know, women understand things and they think of things and they, they understand, uh, uh connections. Um, you know, I think there's that, there's that great Ted talk where that guy talks about how, you know, if you say, say, like it, inside a woman's head, it, it's like a ball of string, and then everything is sort of connected to each other. Men, everything's in a different box, and that's just the way that we're wired. And there's a box called nothing. So, like when a woman is like, "What are you thinking about?" and you say nothing, it's like, "Yeah, you really are thinking about nothing." There literally is a box that's nothing. W- women don't have that, and uh, I think with that, women being able to understand humanity a lot more than men and be able to make connections. It's just, it's just you know perfect for it. It, it just gravitates towards that. That's not to say that there aren't men that, that are into it, but it is majority female. Question: Your own work, notwithstanding, is there any? Do you have a book or a true crime story that actually frightened you or made you uncomfortable? Frightened me or made me uncomfortable? I mean, you know, Michelle's book, "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," was mm-hmm. frightening. And we're talking about Michelle, just to bring people up to speed, Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was a, is a major bestseller. There's a documentary out on it now, and it's about the Golden State Killer. Now, you were friends with Michelle. Correct. And you are the one that actually ended up finishing her book. Yes, myself and her researcher, Paul Haynes, and her husband, Pat Oswalt. And right. um, yes, I was friends with Michelle when she passed away suddenly, uh, you know, it was a shock, but I, 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 I knew how hard she was working on this book, and I, I just, I wrote a, a, a tribute to her right after I found out and said, I'll do anything I can to, to finish this book or help finish this book. So I started uh, working with Paul Haynes and uh, her researcher and Patton, and we, you know, she wrote the book in, in kind of chunks, not uh, linearly. So had to figure out what was going to go where and then figure out what we would do with the things that, that weren't uh, completed. And, you know, it was a process. But, but to, to go back to Larry's question when he asked you which of these, for lack of a better word, frightened you, this was your, your first instinct was to say this one. Why? Because... When you think about serial killers, uh, David Berkowitz was shooting people on Lover's Lanes. So then how do you stop that? Okay, don't go to Lover's Lanes. I mean, stop the guy, too. I'm not blaming anybody right, for being right, on Lover's Lanes. But, but there's a way to protect goes, yourself. Yes. Um, same thing with Zodiac. Uh, you know, 
what this guy was doing, though, was that he was entering a house where a woman was sleeping with her boyfriend or husband in their bedroom, the most safest place you could think to being. He would tell the woman to tie up the man. He would turn the man on his stomach and put plates on the on his back and say, if I hear these plates move, I'm going to kill your wife, then come back and kill you. And then he would take the woman into another room and then rape her. And then he would hang out in the house and eat snacks and and sort of think that they, that he left, make them think he left, and then make them realize he's still there. He graduated from doing this to killing them. And nobody really knew that much about this guy. There was so much evidence. Um, and the reason why Michelle wanted to write the book is that nobody knew who, uh, um, you know, he was the most frightening serial killer seemingly of all time, but nobody knew who he, nobody knew the story, and that's why she wanted to tell it. And also just to help, you know, try and help solve it. He was just in court, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, so he was, the, so the book came out on uh, like February 25th, two years ago. And he was caught with genetic genealogy two months later. Will you explain what genetic genealogy is? Because this is sort of a new tool in your toolbox. Yes. So what? So there was uh, there was semen left at the scenes of the murders and the rapes, but um, because of statute of limitations, they threw away a lot of the semen from the rapes. But they still had some of it at uh, in Contra Costa County. So when you have the semen or you have blood or you have fingernail clippings or, or, or any, anything, skin cells, uh, you can process DNA from that. Uh, then you try to put it into a database like CODIS, which is a national database for, um, for felons, to see if you could figure out who this guy is. They weren't able to. What they did, though, is that they took that DNA and they entered it into a public genealogy database called GEDmatch, which is typically used for people that are trying to build their family trees, figure out like what their family was like, that kind of thing. They got a hit. Uh, the, the chromosomes matched up that this is a, they got a third cousin of his. And then they had to build a family tree to find this guy. And once they actually identified and said, this is probably the guy you know, he was in the area at the right time. It makes sense, this, this, and this. They follow him around. They wait for him to discard some DNA in a tissue or something. They pick that up. Then they do a one-to-one -one match between that and the sample that was found at the crime scene. And then they know they have their guy. Do you feel like uh, serial killers follow a general psychological profile? You know, there's a, they, talk, they talk about the triad of serial killers. Do you guys know what the triad is? Well, no. we know what a triad is, but share with us what a triad of, for the serial killer is. It's um, arson, bedwetting, and uh, animal abuse. So uh, all, many serial killers in their childhood displayed one, if not all, of those three behaviors. We don't know about... Uh, about Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. We don't know about him uh, and whether he uh, expressed any any of those behaviors uh, when he was small, but that's 
one of the things that when I get asked that question, I point to. Are there any unsolved cases that are piquing your interest now? Yeah. You know, there's 220,000 unsolved murders since 1980. So they all, uh, wow. you know, it's a, that's a staggering number. I've got a case that I was working in, uh, in New York, in Owl's Head Park, Brooklyn, a woman, mother of two, who was found uh, slain. I had really good video of the suspect. I thought I would get the guy in the week, in a week, and it's been three years now, and I'm still looking for him. Uh, you know, it's just it's it's you know obviously there's the the old cases that you look at like Zodiac. I would like Zodiac to be solved just so people can use their brain, their bandwidth to you to to work on other crimes. You know. Um, we don't need another kind of John Benet Ramsey. As much as that was a tragedy, we don't need another John Benet Ram. I would rather see a production company put um, put money into stories about solving murders of, of that haven't been told a million times, murders of people of color and uh, black transgender um, murders. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do is just focus on those cases because you know those kind of big cases have been done over and over and over again. I mean, look at how much how much ink and how many shows have been made about John Benet and OJ. Um, you know, I think, and I think the people are looking for a lot more too. Well, I think, I think people, they, you know, they consider people like that disposable. Oh, sure. You know, it's like the transgender, or the prostitutes get killed and nobody looks because they figure they're lost souls and nobody seems to care, but a life is a life. Absolutely. And that's what I try to stress, um, especially with, you know, I, I've, I do a lot of work with sex worker murders and uh, there was one author that, that referred to them as the, the less dead. This is how the police sort of see them as, and this is how the media sees them as too, is that the less dead, um, they were the less living too. You know, they were completely on the margins of society and uh, they just don't, you know, you know, there's a hierarchy when it comes to the media of what they will cover if, say, somebody goes missing, if somebody goes missing, number one is pregnant white woman. Pregnant white woman goes missing. They're going to run with that. Right. Then it's little white girl. Then it's little white girl. Then it's like uh, a prom queen white girl. Then it might be a little white boy. And then at the very bottom is black transgender. And this is the way that the, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter after the murder of George Floyd, we've been seeing um, attacking. There's been much more attention on yeah those the the truly marginalized within those communities. Exactly, and that's going to be the you know we're we're facing systemic racism in police departments and everything, but there also is an opportunity to have the media, and I've been seeing it too, have the media actually start paying more attention to these other cases and forcing the police to to pay attention to these cases. Which case from history do you wish you had gotten to work on? That's a good question. Well, thank you, Larry. <laughs> I could guess he was, he. well, we know that JFK intrigued and piqued him as a child. Did that follow him through his adulthood? Tell us, please, Billy. No, because I solved it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, and how did you solve it? Was it one shooter? Was it a single shooter? Was it multiple shooters? It was. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Bottom line. 
Yeah. There's all the theories and the war yeah, commission. Yeah, and it's and just, it's not, it, it's not there. You know, you're literally chasing shadows. Every, what I, the way I describe it is every schmuck has his day. Yeah, this, is, <laughs> this was a guy that tried to kill General Walker and was 20 feet away from him and hit the window pane, uh, you know, um, in his driveway. You know, he just got, he got lucky on the biggest day of his life. So what 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 case do you what wish case? you could have worked on? Like that you still to this day find the most fascinating? Probably Black Dahlia. Really? Really? Yeah. Why? Just because, you know, living in Los Angeles and, you know, having this sort of love affair with L.A. Noir and going to these places where she had been, you know, as much as Los Angeles loves to tear down history a lot of it is still up you know L, you know la tore down the hotel where rfk was killed yeah. uh, but they you know there's you could still go to the biltmore which is the one of the last places that elizabeth smart was seen and it kind of it, it gets it gets in you and the the brutality of that crime and the statement that 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 offender was attempting to make and just having to figure that there's no way that that was the their first or their last. You know, you don't start there. You know, you don't right. start with, with Black Dahlia. You don't start with bisecting a body, putting a Glasgow smile on their face, which is which is the the um, you know cutting their their mouth from um, from the corner of the mouth to the ear on both sides. Uh, you know everything else that that happened to her uh, to her body. You don't. I, I don't see a killer starting there, and I don't see a killer ending there. Um, this was something that was, and then making a statement in public, uh, there's just a lot of strange characters. It was 1947, Los Angeles. It was right after the war. It was the peak of noir and noir cinema. Uh, it's just a fascinating, it's just a fascinating series of events. And then just the way that the media was working with the police, um, both for good and for bad was just really interesting. And, uh, you know the killer sending her her artifacts to the, the police, and there's just so much there that um, that would be the the one single specific case. Yeah, you have a very popular podcast with your partner Paul Holes. You guys have been talking a lot about, and I know we have to wrap this up. The Fort Hood case. Yes. So we just bring us up to speed as of today. What is going on with the Fort Hood case? I know that there have been. Well, there's been an arrest, or actually, the, the the suspect has killed himself. Yes, and there is a, also an arrest too. So Vanessa Guillen had gone missing. The police um, uh, doing doing a search with citizen detectives uh, found her body uh, by a river, and they were able to deduce that she had been murdered on base um, by a man who was sexually harassing her. She hadn't formally reported the sexual harassment yet, but she had told her family. Uh, the army did a really piss poor job of of protecting her, and then this and um, you know this guy apparently was was afraid that she was going to ruin his career. Hit her over her head with a hammer, then invited his girlfriend to help him dispose of the body. And one of the things you said in your podcast was literally there had to have been blood everywhere, and they found was it they found a receipt that they had gone to, like, the hardware store and bought... Like you said, 
in your podcast, if someone walks in by to ask to buy a tarp and like eight bottles of bleach, it should mm-hmm. probably send up a flag. <laughs> yes. Which was which was me. That's not what they yeah. bought. That was a story about what I would buy when I would work for my dad <laughs> house painting. Which I loved. Yeah. I thought I thought, wow, yeah, that that would be a flag. Yeah. And I never <laughs> thought about it back then. You know, I'm just like I'm buying eight bottles of bleach and some tarp. But yeah, yeah no, um, you know, they were they bought stuff that you would that you know that you would buy to to dispose of a body. And uh, you know, there, there is, it's, it's opened up a wider conversation now about how the, the army and the military in general investigates and deals with sexual assault and sexual harassment. And we've gotten so many, uh, veterans and people that are still in the armed forces telling us these horrific stories of even if you report it. And when you report it, um, the backlash that you can get because these people are in charge of your lives. You know, this is where this is not even this is bigger than a, a job where it happens when you can still go home. I mean, you're sleeping on the base. You're sleeping with those same people in the same room as uh, as your tormentors. And we've just gotten so many stories about it. And I really hope that this will open up the the conversation and and get some real change done because. They, um, the army is not protecting uh, the people that have signed up to protect the country. Before we let you go, is there anywhere that amateur true crime junkies who maybe even consider themselves amateur profilers could go online to to sort of play along or just go to your website and obviously listen to your podcast, read your book? Where where would someone perhaps who who fit that profile maybe like Larry and myself and uh-huh. sometimes like Sabrina that we can learn more about how to do these things or how to profile or you know yeah. try and solve cases. Well, that's exactly you know when I wrote the book because I was a regular guy, not a law enforcement guy, solving crimes. I put an entire section at the end of the book saying how to do it, uh, at least using social media and how to do it. Um, so Chase Darkness with me has that. When you have Murder Squad, every week we give an assignment to everybody listening. And it might be there's a there, there's this case, uh, you know, say for Black Dahlia, we said there's this case. Find us other cases with, with similar circumstances from across the country. And this is not going to be something that you can Google. You've got to go into specific newspaper archives and search like you used to have to do with the microfiche, like one page at a time. By the way, using saying microfiche dates you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know. Yes, going to half the of East our Middle listeners do Library, not know what microfiche is. Microfiche is is just a picture of a newspaper that you'd have to scroll through, and then yes, uh, researching was a hell of a lot harder back then than it is now. But um, but that's the reason though that you have like for a Black Dahlia case, it's okay if somebody has time on their hands and they want to go do that they want to go down to their local public library and just do searches for 10 hours and see wow look at this in this little town in ohio say and this is this is you know uh, i'm just making this up but this little town in ohio this woman was found you know bisected and uh with a glasgow smile very similar to black dahlia around the same time there could be a link there and it's those kind of things that we do on Murder Squad that we give people assignments and then they send stuff in and, and we've gotten a lot of good results. And we can find that by listening to the podcast and also are this, are, for those of us who sometimes don't remember everything we hear is it and have been accused of hearing things that 
in a different way. Is there anywhere we can find a transcript of that, or is the assignment posted on your website as well? The, the assignment's posted. Each each assignment is posted on the website. On, um, I think murder it's squad. The, the, the murder squad dot com. Yeah. So when we've done, I don't know how many episodes we're up to, maybe sixty or something. So yeah, a lot. You, yeah, you can go through and then you know pick a case, and some of them were like William Bradford, who was a serial killer who was found. Uh, after he was arrested, found with thousands of different photographs of women, some of whom uh, he had he had murdered and they didn't know. We still need to identify about 50 of those women. So we've identified three through the podcast. So it's just a matter of going through and, you know, having people even like take send, you know, a text to like a grandfather who was around, you know, L.A. in the 80s that is not on social media and say, hey, do you remember? I know you used to hang out at this club. Do you remember any of these women? That kind of thing. This has been fascinating. Billy, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a fan, and, you know, we are, and I hope this is the beginning of a number of conversations that we can continue to have. Yeah. Because people are always crazy. They're like, what would you What would you be if you had to do it all over again? And I'm always like, I'd be a criminal profiler. <laughs> so I just want to say that I was a huge uh, fan of your mom's. And um, I used to, as a kid, I used to do impersonations of comedians, and I used to do the can we talk. I used to do the finger down the throat and the gagging. I would do all of that. <laughs> You're a jack of all trades. I was going to say, you were a special child. <laughs> I really was. It was like that. The and murder. And, and Billy Crystal. It was like, those were like, yeah, there was like a year that I just did them entirely, and my parents were just like, what is up with this kid? Well, also, okay. and murder. And murder, too. Yeah. So, you know, actually, the frightening thing, Larry will tell you, that frightening thing was, that was actually my mother's interest, too. That's that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. She loved true crime. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. Billy, thank you so, so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. 